Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Wine Access is how I found Jeff Clark from O2 Wines. If you want really amazing wines, things that are new and different, go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP, see what I'm drinking today, and get 10% off your first order. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Jeff Clark is the head winemaker at O2 Estate in the Awatiri Valley of Marlboro, New Zealand. Jeff is Australian, but after starting his career at Penfolds in Australia, he moved to New Zealand, where he essentially helped shape the style of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc at Montana Wines, which is now Brancott. He's grown a bunch of New Zealand wine brands. He's been named International White Winemaker of the Year at the London International Wine Challenge in 1999, and then again in Japan in 2003. And the UK journalist and master of wine, Tim Atkin, has called him one of the six top winemakers globally. Many of you have had Jeff Sauvignon Blanc, which was in the last wine access shipment. It was probably the most beloved wine of the group. And I was so excited by the wine that I tracked him down. So he's here with us today to talk about his life, about O2 and about the Awatiri Valley and Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand. Thank you so much for being here, Jeff. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Great pleasure to be talking to you and uh, all your listeners. So I need to know how an Australian wound up shaping the course of the New Zealand wine industry. How did this come about? In essence, I was actually born in Melbourne, in Australia, of course, and I travelled to uh, South Australia to study at Roseworthy, which were at the time, so that's back in 1976. At that time, it was by far and away, the, the best place to to actually study winemaking. Travelled across there, did my studies for three years, and then, as you say, joined Penfolds in the Barossa Valley. And I stayed there for years. I had a wonderful time um, learning about, obviously, the fabulous red wines, etc. And then I had an opportunity to, to move on back to Victoria to uh, what was at that stage an emerging premium wine company uh, called Tisdall Wines, which also had the Mount Helen brand. And the Mount Helen wines came from a very significant vineyard, which was in central Victoria, just north of Melbourne. And I sort of spent 10 years there working for Tisdall Mount Helen Wines, a very exciting period of, you know, Australian and, and, and certainly Victorian winemaking. And, you know, a lot of the boutique wineries were all just sort of starting to emerge and um, high quality wines were really, the you know, the major focus. And it was from there that I got the offer and headhunted, as it were, to move to Montana Wines. And at the time, that was about 1993. At that point, that was you know, another one of those quiet periods for the wine industry it was a recession in Australia at that point. And the offer came up to head up the winemaking team at Montana in 1993. So um, I um, packed my bags with uh, my wife and well, she actually, she and the kids came along about uh, three months later. I went over and did the 1993 harvest at Montana with a great team, with lots of vineyards and wineries up and down the New Zealand countryside. 
I had at that stage about 22 winemakers working for me. Oh my gosh. Very skilled and, and, you know, it was a very exciting time for us all in the wine industry here in New Zealand. That makes more sense now how you made the jump because one of the things that was missing to me is like, how do you make bigger, heavier wines in Barossa? And then moved to New Zealand where it's a very different climate, but the step in in the middle in Victoria where that's such a unique place in Australia where there is so much cool climate viticulture and it varies so much. I could see now how that comes together a little bit better. Did that definitely help? Yes, it did. One of the questions was had I been looking at making white wines, you know, and certainly uh, at that stage it, um, at Tisdall's and, and the Mount Helen. The Mount Helen vineyard was very much a sort of pioneering vineyard developed by uh, Dr. Tisdall, who was a local GP um, in the country town, Kyabram. At that stage, it was st- commenced in 1976, and it had about 32 acres of Chardonnay. And at that point, in 1979, when the first harvest came in, that was the single largest planting of Chardonnay in the Southern Hemisphere. So wow. uh, it's interesting just how um, times have changed so quickly. And so we had a significant planting of Chardonnay, which was started by Dr. Tisdall, but also a, a good uh, friend of mine, uh, John Ellis, was the first winemaker there. The Mount Helen Chardonnay was quite a knockout and a bit of a sensation. We also had about 15 acres of Sauvignon Blanc, which was also ah. um, cool climate. Sauvignon Blanc was very new. John had started making this Mount Helen Fumé Blanc style, which was basically a Sauvignon Blanc that had a, a portion of oak age yep. in it. And that was also quite revolutionary at that time. It was Hugely popular in a lot of the um, high-end restaurants around Australia, very successful. And so, you know, my introduction was 1983. I went across to join John and then basically I, from about 1984, I, I, I took over uh, making the wines and we were very successful with a lot of those wines uh, from the grapes from the Mount Helen Vineyard. And also we had another vineyard, which was called Ross Birkin, which was just near to um, the winery, which was in Nechuka, which is, if people know about Nechuka, it's a a very quaint historical town right on uh, the Murray River. It's the closest avenue from Melbourne, about 200 kilometres or 150 miles away from Melbourne. And it was an interesting place to, to make wine. And we had the Ross Birkin Vineyard, which is right next door. And that had Sauvignon Blanc and uh, Semillon also. And I made some wines, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon blend, Bordeaux style Bordeaux blend. Style, right? yep. And that was also one of the first, other than I think there was some sort of small pockets of that over in Western Australia, Cullens and from Margaret River. And outside of that, we were probably the only ones that were actually doing that wine style at that point in time, which was mid mid 80s. Yeah, I mean, you really only think about Shiraz at that point. That was just around the time that things were really taking off for Australia. And you were doing 
a totally different style. So it does make sense that you went to New Zealand. But when you got there, New Zealand was in a weird place in the early 90s. It wasn't much there. It was still really a beer country, right? What did you find when you got to Montana? I know you had a lot of winemakers, so obviously there were experienced people there. But what was the region like? There weren't even a quarter of the wineries that are there now. No, it, it, it was it was very underdeveloped. Of course, Montana was the major player in those days. They had some significant vineyards, particularly at their namesake vineyard at the Brancott Vineyard just over the hill from where I am now. And that vineyard was, you know, it was a reasonable size. I wouldn't want to say it was probably about 300 acres, but that was probably one of the largest vineyards that was here in Blenheim at that time. I think at that stage, it was around about, oh, there would have been about 1,500 hectares. So let's say 3,000 plus 3,000, 4,000 acres of grapes in the ground at that wow. point in time. And it was just the start of the major export boom for New Zealand. Had Cloudy Bay gotten its start when you were there? It had already taken off at that oh, point, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. So yes, exactly. Was it competitive or collaborative with Cloudy Bay? They weren't very big, but they had a big name. Yes, of course. And and New Zealand winemakers historically have always been collaborative. It's not about beating each other up. We're such a small player realistically in the international world that has been one of the nice parts of dealing with other New Zealand wineries in on the international stage. We you know, we all work together. You know, we all come under the umbrella of New Zealand wine and whether it's Marlborough wine. Nobody talks down each other. We're all in it together and spreading the message of New Zealand and, and Marlborough and Sauvignon Blanc. So at that stage, uh, Montana was largely the biggest supplier of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc to the world, but Cloudy Bay had one of the biggest names. Right. You know, it was often the case that Montana was more commercially available. Certainly in the early stages, before we developed the market in the US, the UK was the sort of traditional home of where we'd started selling wine. As I said, in, by 1993, realistically, the wine was really just being introduced into the world. Exports were starting to take off and, and the UK was the first place. So Montana was widely available, it was in the supermarkets, it was in the, you know, the major chains around the country, whereas Cloudy Bay was, was you know, very rare and <laughs> yeah. uh, you could find it in, in the high-end liquor stores and in the restaurants. We each found our own slot, really, in that sense. Do you think that the New Zealand wine culture is a little more collaborative than the Australian culture? seems like Australia reminds me so much of the U.S. There's a lot of people just kind of doing their own thing and they don't have time to collaborate a lot of times. And each region, some of them are competitive and some of them are collaborative, but a lot of them are on their own. OK, we're established, so we just keep doing our own thing. Without a doubt, the wine industries in all the, the New World countries have evolved from being a lot of little small operations with maybe one or two larger places where they all tended to work together. California obviously led the way that moved through to Australia and the new world wine styles. And then that came across to New Zealand and advanced from there. And without a doubt, each country now has four or five major players that maybe control 
good 80% of what each country represents with respect to wine. But then the layer of the small to medium has expanded enormously. And within that, I think the collaboration is probably strongest in the local area, in the sub-region. We're talking about Australia. It might be the Yarra Valley. If we're talking about here, it might be Marlborough, etc., California, Sonoma, etc. And from that perspective, the collaboration is really quite tight on that basis. But broadly, certainly the, the large wineries have dominate the the volume of wine that's exported around the world and they have a major place in production of the product the rest of us we have these sort of small groupings and even in Marlborough now we have a new group of like-minded Marlborough producers that are now coming under Appalachian Marlborough now established those people are 100 percent being produced within marlborough bottled in marlborough oh um, yes we also right. yes we have you, a you know, ta- tasting panel i want to hear more about that but i'm i just wanted to ask you one point so actually what is happening in sonoma and it's already happened in napa is that there's a lot of outside money that has come in to the region and as that's happened it's actually become much more fragmented And it's become sort of like people who are quite wealthy from Silicon Valley or other places are buying wineries for their weekend use. And hopefully they'll make some money. And there's a lot of strange politics involved in how wineries evolve once one of those people owns them. It's like the old school producers are still together somewhat, but it has created less of a community and each man or woman for his or her own. Is that happening at all in New Zealand or are you still just seeing straight up farmers in the smaller places? To a large degree, you know, as I said, it's sort of this sort of dichotomy in the sense that obviously the major wineries, the big players are largely internationally owned. Pernod Ricard, which was Montana, Constellation out of America, Accolade, which owns the Mudhouse brands. Those big companies are international players in their own right. As to the smaller players, you know, most of those are still New Zealand owned. There have been some amalgamations, groupings, Mr. Foley from America, has come over and, and put together a conglomeration of some of the smaller high-end labels. Mm-hmm. But that's largely still managed and run by New Zealand's locally. To a large degree, most of the vineyards that operate outside of the big corporate blocks are owned by locals and, and New Zealanders. That's good to hear. By and large, we still feel that for the small to medium-sized wineries, which there are a lot of them, that's pretty close to home as far as the ownership is concerned. Now, I want to go back to this. You guys have created a group. Is there any way that consumers can support that group? Are you going to label? You know how in France there's the Vigneron Independent and they have the same thing in Italy. Will there be anything like that coming out of New Zealand? Because This audience especially is really interested in supporting small and the labeling. I think it's a huge differentiation, at least for us, to know who we're buying from. Yeah. So at this stage, this association has really been going for about perhaps three years now. Everybody's pretty busy. So we're, we're all trying to fit this process in around doing our day jobs. 
but um, <laughs> it's got to the stage now where there will be the emblem on the back label, which indicates that this wine has been part of this grouping, Appalachian Marlboro oh, wine. It's been taste tested. So we have to, um, you know, essentially put our wines up to our peers for tasting just to make sure that it fits a minimum standard notwithstanding the fact that all New Zealand wine still has to go through a tasting panel before it's exported. But this one just has a further requirement for that. It's like your own AOC. You're creating an AOC within it. I think that's very important because one of the questions I was going to ask you is about the sub-vineyards. In the scheme of the terroir, I feel that the New World has had some challenges in breaking down their Appalachians into smaller areas. And Marlborough is a big Appalachian when you think about the number of vineyards and how much wine comes out of it. But there are three, at least three distinct areas. You are in one of them. And I don't know whether or not this is going to be something that we'll see. You put it pretty strongly on the label that it's Awatiri, but I don't know. You don't see Wairau a lot on the label, and that's a little bit less of a boast because Awatiri has such a distinct and different climate. But we don't see the subregions. Are there more that are going to emerge, or what do you see in that? And, and actually, we should probably back up and just say, can you explain what the heck I'm talking about? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, well, I've been involved certainly through my original position at Montana, given that we had vineyards right across the Marlborough region as well as the rest of New Zealand. In identifying and working within the properties, but also with the research people to actually understand better as we sort of developed around Marlborough, really that came to the fore just after 2000. We were over planting vineyards in the Awateri. There had obviously been a number of people like Vavasur who'd been there for, for many generations. But realistically, the Awateri took off in, in early 2000. And it was at that point that a number of the winemakers, my peers currently, identified that you know there was quite strong aromatic and flavor differences that were coming through. And so we worked in with the research teams to try and identify exactly what was going on there. And and out of that, I suppose, is a number of wine companies have explored that more or identified that more. For the larger wineries, I suppose it, it becomes a resourcing exercise where Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, they need to get it wherever they, they can take it. Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is now becoming potentially a a scarcer resource. We're running out of land to plant on. And as a consequence, you know, we may be five years away from peak Sauvignon Blanc. So for the big brands, they'll take their material where they can get it. Certainly some of the new plantings are a little bit more climatically challenging areas, um, either through frost or water availability, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a consequence of that, they use the blending capacity that in a certain year, the Awatari may be a real star, but the upper Wairau may have had a little bit more of a climatic effect. And so overall, they put a blend together that takes the strengths from one area and builds on the base from material elsewhere. Some of the other wineries, mostly the smaller wineries, have probably had a little bit more focus in on trying to do some of this sub-regional identification. And so played on their strengths of where they are, 
the Yawateri Valley, particularly for wine companies like O2, it is probably one of the most distinct subregions that we have. Oh, yes. Just because of the terroir, the soil, the proximity to the coast, the flavours and the aromatics that we develop in that particular area make them more distinct than perhaps would be the case in the Wairau Valley. But we identified quite early on in my days at Montana was that we had quite distinct characters in what we at that stage were calling the sort of three main subregions. So we had the Rapara Valley, which was on the on the northern side of the Wairau, quite young soils, floodplain of, of the Wairau River, mm-hmm. maybe only a thousand years old, lots of rocks, almost like a hydroponic type of um, vineyard that had quite a lot of water underneath in the aquifer, but the soil was basically rocks and a bit of silt. It wasn't too wet? No, no. The rainfall, particularly here in Marlborough over summertime, is quite benign. Generally, the rainfall is quite dry over the, the months of January, February, March. You know, we get infrequent rainfall occurring you might have an inch or two inches but then nothing for a couple of weeks those type of vines that growing over there were not terribly vigorous because they were restricted by the soils they required quite a lot of irrigation just to to keep them running and you ended up with these tropical ripe pineapple melon ripest characteristics versus straight across the on the other side of the valley where the vineyards like Brancot, etc were uh, that was up into the southern hills in the wither hills more on slopes deeper soils older soils glacial outwash we tended to describe that as cooler sites less rainfall and so you had more clay in the soil, more water holding capacity, and you tended to get wines with greater concentration of flavor. But that fuller body too, right? Yes. And could also be that slightly greener, grassy, bell pepper type of characteristics. I always taste jalapeno, the spicy pepper in some of those wines. It's really hard to tell because it just says Marlboro on the label most of the time. Well, a lot of the high-end wines were often a little bit more site-specific. People's top-end wine often had those identifications, which are more about where they actually came from. Those sort of wines from southern valleys, as we call them, subregion, certainly were quite distinctly different from those in the Rapara. And then we progressed over and started developing vineyards as an industry over in the Awateri Valley. And what we recognised, particularly for some of the ones along the coastal area, we had this intensity of what I often called sweet herbal aromatics, yeah. you know, and you we to describe it. It was if you handle a tomato plant and you come away with this wonderfully sweet herbal type note, that really bright, refreshing green character, which was quite different from that what we term in a technical sense was methoxypyrazine, which was more right. this um, green pepper, you know, yes. The awateri also has salinity and minerality which you really cannot taste in any of the other sites. And I know that you're especially close to the coast, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it is such a totally different style that really does stand out. It is not going back to the question I had about style and you shaping the style of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, I'm a terrible blind taster, but there is no way I wouldn't get 
and New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. It's so distinctive. <laughs> it's, it's the easiest wine ever to get, but it is so distinctive. However, I think that the style has become this very odd thing, like it's almost a beast in and of itself. And now I wonder about the marketing of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. It has been so successful with all of the flavors, really of what you were talking about, the Brancot that from the Southern Valleys, that grapefruit, pyrazines, full-bodied, rich, that now people, and I hate this phrase because I am a soccer mom, but call it the soccer mom wine or whatever it is. I think it's incredibly unfair to women, but I won't, won't get into that now. But it becomes this, this style that in some ways now the critics can just say, oh, well, that's Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. It was its absolute strength was this unbelievable thing that I know you had a big hand in crafting. And now I think part of the reason that it became this kind of meme or whatever it is, is because unlike what you were doing at O2, it didn't change. It never really evolved past that, except at some of the upper end. But we don't have a lot of access to that here. Probably the UK has more because New Zealand's a commonwealth, but we don't have that in the US as much. And I also think people still look at Cloudy Bay and say, that's New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc. Let's be honest, your wine's way more distinctive than Cloudy Bay and it's less expensive. But you know what I'm talking about here? Is Does yes. this make any sense? I would love to hear your take on it because you crafted this style. I just wonder after your years of doing this, how you look at this legacy, you're not doing that anymore, but you did do it for a long time. How does this all play out in your mind? We have been working on on trying to separate it out. And, and to be fair, the, some of the biggest difficulties is been that in dealing with the international markets, we are somewhat beholden to some degree with the big retailers, you know, oh, yeah. and part of that struggle has been that is where the big volumes go. And right. so if you want to deal in that part of the market, that's why the big companies have been successful because they have the sales power and the distribution networks and the relationships with the big retailers. Don't get and me started it, on the US and how messed up it is <laughs> exactly. here. Oh, it's such a yes. horrible, it's, you deal with 50 different countries if you don't go with a big retailer and it's very, yeah, very exactly. difficult. It's just a constant struggle. I get it completely. And I think the listeners understand this too, because I have people on all the time talking about how messed up the system is, especially in the US. And we're such a huge market because we have so many people. And we love yes. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Keep going. We, yes. we will. So we will. But I think we need to expand. I think this part of this conversation, the goal of this conversation is sort of expand people's minds to understanding that that was one style and there are many others. Yeah. From that perspective, often dealing with the bigger retailers, and, and that's fine. That gets us broad distribution of New Zealand wine. But to be fair, as I talk to a lot of these people internationally, where the journalists were often asking us, Laura, what's the new thing, Jeff? What's new happening? Have we got some new varieties coming along? And there was a nice conversation about whether Marlboro was doing, you know, in the first instance, we expanded, obviously, with Pinot Noir. We've been telling people that we make some terrific Chardonnays and Rieslings. Some of the wineries have started to put in some Grunewald liner or some Albarino, which is all very interesting. But then when I talked to the retailer, they said, oh, no, we want Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, you know. <laughs> We'll one, take the Riesling one. from Canterbury, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's so weird because on the one hand, Marlboro has so much strength. And then on the other hand, they'll take a Riesling in from North Canterbury. I see that yeah. on the shelf. But they wouldn't do it from Marlboro. No. 
we'll take a step away from the podcast to thank our sponsor this week, very fittingly, Wine Access. How did I meet Jeff Clark and taste the wines of O2? I would not have known about them except for Wine Access. Wine Access is actual access to wines that you can't get in other places, wines that are different, that are on the cutting edge. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You'll get 10% off your first order. Or like this selection, you could join the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club, wineaccess.com slash normal. This was in the first wine club selection. Wine Access has the connections to find people like Jeff Clark, who are working in the Awatiri Valley and doing fascinating things with New Zealand wine, taking all his years of experience and then applying it to a place that has outstanding terroir and can make wines that are a little different from Marlboro. If you want to get turned on to new producers, new wines, and be assured that these wines are going to be high quality every single time, join the other people who have listened to this and said, hey, I'm going to try Wine Access out. Their customer service is unrivaled. They have a never settle guarantee. If you don't like the wine, they will give you a credit for another bottle. WineAccess.com, WineACCESS.com slash normal to join the wine club and get selections like this from Jeff at O2. WineAccess.com slash WFMP. I am so glad that they're a partner. I learned so much and find out about these really exciting wines. You can too. Do it today. And we need to thank our patrons on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people. If you want exclusive content, mini classes, hangouts, all of the access that you get to me directly and to a community of really awesome wine lovers who are supporting the podcast. About 4% of listeners donate to Wine for Normal People on Patreon for as little as $21.60 a year, you can get access to the community. Also, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. We've got some really great ones coming up. Oregon and Washington, the white wines of Italy. Check it out, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. And now let's get back to the show with Jeff Clark from O2. I'll tell you, these wines don't taste like other Marlboro Sauvignon Blancs. So after you listen to this, definitely try to seek them out. They're the next evolution. They pigeonholed you. Yeah, exactly. And that was what I was going to say. So we ended up getting pigeonholed. And I suppose realistically, that's not going to change for the big guys. You know, realistically, they're going to be Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. I suppose it's up to the likes of O2 to actually be there and saying, okay, now put our hands up and say, well, our vineyards are in the Awateri. We think they're quite distinct. We need to tell that story about why that that's so and and the moment i'm working with the o2 team marketing team to just try and identify and actually say what is the the distinctiveness about those vineyards if we look out at um at the sites as we were talking about before they're quite close to the coast we do believe that we get the sea marine influence the salt laden winds that come oh, in yes Yep. The vineyard of ours that's closest to the water and actual fact gets a lot of salt burn on, on the leaves. So you can actually identify that it's working pretty hard. The wind run out there on a lot of these coastal vineyards is, is very high, a lot more exposed than would be the case in the sort of central wire out to the southerlies and, and the sea breezes. 
And I think it is a major part of that umami taste effect that we get where they get that sautéed herbs or tarragons. It doesn't follow the mold. And I think that's why people were so excited about it, because honestly, I think consumers are always ahead of retailers. So they taste these wines and say... That's something new. That's something exciting. That is the next evolution. They'll say that before the retailers will say it. That, that's the biggest disconnect is that the retailers or the distributors, really, honestly, it's not even the retailers. The retailers know what the consumers want. There's this big problem where what you're making is what people might be ready for, but then the distributors run the table, at least in the U.S., what kind of soil types? Yeah. Is it like all marine layer soils out there? Essentially, most of Marlborough soils are, you know, New Zealand is a very young country geologically. You know? Right. So we're, we're talking about Australia is one of the oldest countries yep. geologically in the world, about 4 billion years old, Jeez. you know, some of the soils. New Zealand came up out of the ocean about 270 million years ago, sort of thing. So geologically we're we're very young right young fertile soils active with respect to earthquakes we're still having earthquakes are in earthquake prone area here in Marlborough and so a lot number of the you know, soils on the plains really come up out of the sea in the last few million years or whatever so a lot of it in actual fact was the soil draining off the mountains out into the sea and then the sea's lifting up again. So the floodplains generally very flat and that used to be under the sea. You can see it very actively even today when we have huge catchment area for rivers like the Wairau coming down out of the Southern Alps. We can have a metre or two, three or four feet of water up in the ranges that floods down and then goes out into the bay. Hence, Cloudy mm -hmm. Bay is what Cloudy Bay is all about, is that you can see the silt that is deposited out from these high rainfall events up in the mountains. So the soils are, are fairly young. You know, they're reasonably fertile. As a consequence, different areas do have uh, more or less available water for us. It gets very dry here in summertime. You have to irrigate, right? You can't dry yes. farm anything. Yeah, no. I mean, basically, if I can tip a cup of water on our soils here in Marlborough, it just goes straight through, and you know, all the way down to the aquifer. During summertime, our temperatures are not that high. 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, I suppose. Um, I'm really impressed that you know all of the imperial, these ancient imperial things that we use in the U.S., and you're not using metric. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have learned to, you know, try and convert that over time because I'm talking about two of my uh, U.S. friends. I'm trying to get better. It's hard. It's hard. The hectares and acres. Anyway, yes. sorry. Side note. It's always funny to That's all right. Yeah. So, so we have this warm temperatures, still slightly cooler nights, but what we do get is the northwest winds. Now, mm. they come through off the Australian mainland during summertime, maybe 40, 45 degrees in Australia through the peak of summer. They come across here. They're very drying winds, and particularly yep. after they, they go across the Southern Alps. So in a lot of cases, we are on the East Coast. The winds have gone up over the mountaintop, and if they've got any rainfall at all, it tends to fall on the west coast of New Zealand. Right. And so they're very dry when they get to us. And that 
basically evaporates any water that may be in the soils. And so whilst we say we irrigate, over the summer harvest period, I think we sort of evaporate about three or four feet worth of water and we put back maybe two or three feet worth of water. So it's basically in and out (laughs) very much. Yeah, no dilution. You don't have clay yeah. in the soil, so you're not holding, retaining, sounds like. Some of the vineyards, obviously, on the Southern Valley side have a little bit more clay, but even that are quite free-draining, very hard to put in any sort of water storage conditions. We have to line the dam because otherwise the right. water would just go straight through. In the arbitrary, it's quite different, once again, because in actual fact, there are no aquifers out there. Because over in the the valley, we have what's called the papa layer. So it's a sort of a grey clay that's down 10 feet underground. Mm -hmm. Sitting on top of that, there's a little bit of a gravel layer. But above that is what they call windblown loafs, which is essentially just silty sand that's blown around the place, you know, and sort of settled there. Right, came off glaciers or wherever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the sort of topsoil that the vines are planted in. So any water that runs through that basically hits this proper layer. It's a hard layer. And then just flows to the the lowest point, whether that's the river or out to sea. Slightly different soil structures, again, from these other sub-regions. And that also contributes to um, to what we have. (laughs) You've got six different blocks. So obviously they wouldn't be different blocks if they didn't have different characteristics. But do they all have similar soils but have slightly different climate variations? Do they have different, some slopes? How do yes. it's less of the so soil So for the difference. O2 Classics of Vignon Blanc and also a limited release, these blocks are generally the ones that are selected for that seem to have consistent performance. Often north-facing slopes, which mm-hmm. for us, summertime is is facing the, the sun. They're on quite steep slopes, right up to quite challenging slopes for planting on, maybe up to sort of 20% slope, yeah. which um, when you're trying to harvest that can be quite a tricky issue. They are affected by these salt-laden winds. Some are more sheltered than others. Some are more exposed, of course, and vice versa. And as a consequence, it can be a real struggle to actually get some of the vines on the outer rows to actually grow healthily. They tend to get fairly wind-beaten. And so the vines are doing it tough. The soils are, are not terribly deep. We don't have access to a lot of moisture underground, not having the clay layers. And so what you end up with is a vine that's doing it a little bit tougher than maybe some of the others yeah. planted throughout Marlborough. So our production is about 10 to 12 tonnes per hectare, whereas some of the vineyards here in Marlborough are cropping up 16, 20 tonnes per hectare. So right. it's significantly reduced, restricted just by the sites. As I said, we're out towards the coast. You know, we are affected by those salt-laden winds. We have more of a cooling breeze at nighttime. Certainly during the summertime, as the land heats up on a warm summer day, it gets to about four or five five o'clock in the afternoon and then the convection currents will start bringing in the cooler breezes off the ocean and those coastal vineyards are more affected by that than the more inland ones. 
Do you get any fog, marine fog, or no? No. You know, and I've certainly seen the ones in, in you know, in California. I've experienced, I remember once going to Central Valley, and it was about 104 degrees, and we were <laughs> heading towards <laughs> Monterey, and, and you know, it got drops over the about, hill. Yeah. It, it dropped down to about 62 or something like that Fahrenheit. So, yes, yes. it was a, quite a big Let's just say packing for a trip to California, if you're going to do wine stuff, means you have to bring everything you own. The only thing it won't usually do is rain. So how does Pinot Noir do in this area? Pinot is so picky. So how do you pick the sites for Pinot versus Sauvignon Blanc? Pinot likes cool climate, but you've got to be super patient in a very cool area like that, don't you? Yeah. We need a long hang time for Pinot Noir, without right. a doubt. You know, yep. I, mean, I remember back in my Montana days, you know, we were planting Pinot Noir on, in some of these Rapara soils, and, and we just didn't get the right result. You know, no. the wines were thin and, and hollow. Realistically, we really needed to have the depth of soil and the longer hang time, the cooler sites. And so in one sense, Arbiteri works on that plane. We can get some really nice fruit out of there. In another sense, the danger is that Pinot really doesn't like the winds. That'll affect the flowering, but also affects the canopy management. Uh, Pinot Noir is a very floppy vine. Sauvignon Blanc grows quite strongly vertically. It's easy for us to manage that sort of canopy to get good fruit exposure. Pinot Noir can just completely get blown out in those sort of conditions. But And dare I say, you're in Marlboro with no marl, and Pinot really likes marl soils. It's sad that your namesake does does not deliver for you with the kinds of <laughs> soils that Pinot Well, <laughs> certainly the Southern Valley side, what we found was that on the heavier soils, where we do have some clay on the slopes, and certainly that most of the Pinot Noir plantings have shifted to there. And without doubt, you know, in the Aotearoa, we do get good results in certain years, but it's just a little bit more um, variable, let's say, than we would get particularly on the, some of these Southern Valley sites that we have in Marlborough. Just like the Sauvignon Blanc, the style of New Zealand Pinot to me is so distinctive. It's very, very different. I teach a Pinot Noir around the world class where we taste examples side by side by side in the same vintage. And the Pinot from Marlboro just tastes completely different. It has some earthy characteristic, but it has very clear fruit, just like Sauvignon Blanc. I always say that New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is so transparent. All the flavors are very easy to describe. It's easy to grasp. You know exactly what you're tasting, whether it be the sautéed herbs or the grapefruit or whatever. It's such purity. And I feel that the Pinot has that as well. I always try to grasp why that is that New Zealand's fruit quality, it's so pure. It is so interesting to me. And I always try to figure out why is that, that it's so pure <laughs> versus other places? Yeah, I, without a doubt, the key feature of whenever I've traveled the world tasting my wine, you know, the wines from New Zealand. I remember back in the early days, you know, going into the US market in 1998 and uh, taking a, a series of wines. Of course, we leading with Sauvignon Blanc was the wine that people knew about. And then I presented a Gouard's Tremina or a Chardonnay or 
Pina Noa. What blew everybody away was that everyone was very distinctly varietal. Yes. You know, had this intensity of fruit characteristics. And is it because we're on the bottom of the world, surrounded by ocean <laughs> and all the rest of it, tiny island and all the vineyard areas are very close to the ocean. We have great purity of conditions and all the rest of it. Is it the soil, the young soils? It's probably a bit of all those things, if truth be known. We do have some wonderful conditions. I mean, even today, I'm just looking out at a brilliantly blue sky and crystal clear and... Is it the lack of pollution? Who knows? There's probably a lot of factors, but one thing that is very evident in, in all the wines that we make here in New Zealand is that fruit intensity. It's, it's almost uncluttered, very pure. Another major factor is probably this nice warm days when we're harvesting, but the cool nights, I think, have a significant effect. My experience back in the Australian days, particularly with the sort of inland, big irrigated areas, it was very hot. You know, it just stays hot. It just hangs. Plus degrees. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Even in the middle of the night, you know, two o'clock in the morning, it could be still. It could still be. Yeah, the grapes never get a break. So then the next question I have is: Is the winemaking technique different? Is it more like? You're blessed with this amazing fruit, so don't mess it up. Does everyone feel that way? Let's face it. There's a lot of crappy low-end Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc out there. They're now putting residual sugar in it and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of that. You don't make it, but there is a lot of it out there. Yet, it still has that really strong fruit, pure fruit character. So even if they're monkeying with the winemaking to make it more whatever they think people like, what would you say the winemaking ethos is? Or is there one? Is it just varied? Or do most people just say, hey, this is great fruit, so we'll do it in our own way, but we're not going to mess with it too much? I think that's pretty much it. The reality is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is what it is in the vineyard. We get it off the vine. We use machine harvesting because that's the most efficient way. And we do it in the middle of the night when it's nice and cold. And we get it into the winery as fast as we can. And all of our infrastructure for winemaking these days is that we need get the juice off the skins very quickly. We get the wine clarified. We get it into ferment. We have a bit of playing around with different yeasts and trying to drive different aromatics. But we do the fermentation and we clean it up and we put it in the bottle. And so my part in in the Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc represents maybe only 5%, you know, whereas, you know, hence why winemakers probably prefer to be making Chardonnay or Pinot Noir or something else where where we have a little bit more... um, Control. um, Well, a little bit more avenue to be more creative, perhaps. I think that the difference with the high-end stuff is, is probably just a better focus within the vineyard, more concentrated fruit, less crop, more selection of the high-end blocks that we have versus the more commercial players here like this year. But they have to start picking fairly early to get all their grapes off, a little bit greener, a little less ripe. They harvest from all over the place, being fairly high tonnages. They just don't have the concentration and the power that you you would expect to see in the premium producers' wines. You also make wine in Hawke's Bay. Yes, people help me out with that part of the process, obviously, being 
few hundred kilometres away. Yeah, um, exactly. Down there. So Hawke's Bay certainly makes some wonderful Chardonnays, wonderful Bordeaux-style red wines. That has its own distinct characteristics. It's a warmer area. It's more suited to some of these other varieties than Marlborough. I remember when I first arrived at Montana down here, we had some extensive plantings of Cabernet Sauvignon. That was like red Sauvignon Blanc. It was green. (laughs) It was grassy. It was herbaceous. We were working with some French companies in those days, and the French winemakers used to always say, très herbaceous. (laughs) But isn't there more Merlot now in Hawke's Bay? It's too cool for Cabernet, yeah? Correct. Yeah, Yeah. there's only a few sites in the Gimlet Gravels area where you can do Cabernet well. Uh, Most of the production now is Merlot, but there are still some really nice sites of Cabernet, and that certainly, certainly adds some strength and some weight to some of the Merlot blends. Is your Syrah also sourced from Hawke's Bay, or is that from Marlboro? Would you ever do a cool climate Syrah in Marlboro? Is it too cold? There are some people (laughs) doing Syrah at the moment, and I think it's probably just on the margins. You know, I know that they're doing some, getting some reasonable results out of that. Maybe Syrah's the climate change grape for Marlborough or something like that. You know, maybe if we get a little bit warmer. You don't usually hear a lot about Marlboro winemakers or New Zealand winemakers in general complaining about it. Obviously, it's an enormous problem in your homeland. Yes, because we have this maritime influence, you know, the seas pretty much are directing the conditions for us. It's not that far away to the Antarctic. We can have some pretty cold breezes coming through that cool everything down. At the moment, the temperatures are starting off in the morning here as we head into our winter time. It's around about... 30 degrees or something like that yep. Fahrenheit and minus two or whatever and it'll get colder from there I think that that preserves the conditions that we're likely to have in New Zealand but what we're finding is that with the increasing warmth the seas are getting warmer Ooh. around New Zealand and what this last three years we've had the El Nino conditions And Cyclone Gabrielle, did that wipe out half of Hawke's Bay? Did you get affected by that? Marlboro wasn't as affected by the cyclone. We ended up with about 10 mils of rain, well, you know, a couple of inches of rain. Yep, yep. We dodged their bullet, which saved our bacon because certainly this year was a high humidity year. We had regular rainfall. Wouldn't have been much to to actually push us into a really tough season. As it was, it's turned out wonderfully well. And we've got some magic wines out of 23. But Oh, that's great. Is everything in? You have everything in, right? Yes, yes. Everything's off now. You know, I'm surrounded just where I'm sitting here at the moment by a whole lot of bottles just going (laughs) through the blending part of the year now, putting all the wines together, all the finished ferments. Well, you're not waiting for the baby to come, right? Every year as a winemaker, it's basically like you're having a baby and you just hope that it's not an ugly baby. Yes, exactly. I often say, you know, a baker does what he does 30 times a month, whereas... You got one shot. You got one shot, and so we may have 40 or 50 goes at it in an entire career, which is equivalent to about a month and a half if you're a baker <laughs> or a chef or something like that. You, know? you have to have a certain temperament to be able to handle that. But there isn't a ton of vintage variation in Marlboro, is there? One of the things that we seem to be seeing with climate change is that early in my career, particularly in Australia, you would say that was a really good vintage. That was an average vintage or that was a poor vintage and the poor vintages were very few and far between you know I mean I think probably the first 
20 years of my winemaking career, we probably had about three or four tough vintages or something like that. So it was usually average or above average. Here in Marlborough, we talk about the different years now, probably divided up into those five or six months of the growing season where flowering occurs. Bud burst is in August. Flowering is about November, December. Raisin is occurring. Ripening starts to occur January, February, and then March and April, so harvest time. Well, what we're finding is each year seems to be defined by the fact that November was cold, December was wet, January was hot, February was something else. So you have all these variations across those five or six months, which all vary quite distinctly according to the harvest. Overall, the pattern is reasonably consistent. Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is very reliable in a sense. The trickiest harvests for us from a production perspective, the worst ones like 21 or 15 or 12 was when we have poor flower. We obviously have a very light crop and that causes lots of logistic issues, <laughs> etc. you know, because yes. Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc also sells out within one year. Right. It's not like a Napa Valley Cabernet that you might it's have five years in the cellar, you right. know, so if you have a short year, it just means you start on the next one a little bit earlier. All right. So my last question to you is, so you've been at O2 for about three to four years now, right? Three so- years now. What are the goals for the wines? What do you see for the future of the winery? It sounds like for Marlboro, you're really working on this independent vigneron, I'm going to call it that, project, which I think is spectacular, especially for consumers, because it really fits right into what at least my audience is looking at. I know I look for that because we want to support small. There's plenty of people who can buy big, but for real wine lovers, I think it's very important to us that we support people who are medium to small, you're medium, but still medium to small wineries because it's it's the lifeblood. It's where all the creativity is. I would yeah. assume that's why you moved from bigger wine to smaller wine, right? Yeah. The consistency of the product and making those incremental improvements with time. Most of that for Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is occurring in the vineyard. So we're actively looking at the drive for most Marlborough wineries, but particularly the small ones, is about the sustainability, have the sustainability program that occurs you know, right across New Zealand now. Probably one of the focuses now going on, how do we manage those vineyards for least amount of input into them, trying to reduce our inputs, whether it be the sprays or whatever else we have to do. Fortunately, there's a lot of work going on in the natural products, natural biologicals that we can now use for maintaining disease free fruit, a lot of work going on in soils, organic or biodynamic programs, but they're difficult to do large scale. In a marine climate, it's very difficult. It's very hard to explain, I bet, to distributors and some consumers who are just obsessed with organics and biodynamics when it's just not possible in some places to do organics because of, of the climate. And I think that it's very important for people to understand that. And some organic treatments are less good than sustainable treatments as well. So we have to keep all of that. I'm not advocating for Roundup. I think that's not good, but there are treatments no. that are not Roundup that may be better than yeah, an organic exactly. and, program. And, and so. a lot of the anti-botrytis mold sprays now we have are this 
biological area where we're using natural product to help us out with that. And soil is another area that we're absolutely looking into. One end of the spectrum, taking the best out of the biodynamic area where a large part of that you know, you have the fundamentals of the cow's horn and, and you know, very... <laughs> it's always about the compost, cow horn. But, but certainly the cow horn, if you cut it back to the elemental science of that, you're actually improving the soil health right. by, you know, maintaining the microbes and all the rest of it. And so if we're not necessarily going to go down a biodynamic area, there's still material to be learned from that, you know, and Absolutely. how do we actually do that? And so what we're doing a lot of is checking the soil health now where... Um, putting a, quite a lot of complex compost back onto the soils, trying to improve because of years and years of using herbicide under, you've got a hard pan, dead soil. And so we need to fix that and we need to improve on that. That's all part of the work that we do that's going on in the vineyards now in making sure that we're producing resilient, healthy vines that we're going to get extended life out of. That's all coming through into giving me as a winemaker more flavorsome grapes and that can only help make better wines out of it. I think that the vineyard is certainly the activity that is driving a lot of our improvements in winemaking. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Not only are you a delight to talk to, I love the history that you have with Sauvignon Blanc and with understanding how this valley has evolved and changed and the differences. I hope that you continue to push on that angle of really helping people understand that Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc is not one thing. It can be many things. And as it evolves, it's an exciting story. Your Sauvignon Blanc really hit <laughs> the perfect spot for me, and it hit it for a lot of people. It is right. O2 Sauvignon Blanc. There's the base tier. I think the selection is also available, right, in the U.S. right now? Yes. So we have what we call the, the O2 Estate, Eau de Ferro Estate. It's the classic Sauvignon Blanc, and then we have our limited release. So that's just the, the best wine selection from the vintage, whatever the best parcel was, or maybe even just a blend of two or three of the tanks through the blocks that have done the best for the season. We need to seek that out. And the Pinot is also available. The Rosé is available. The Chardonnay from Hawks Bay is available. Well, I just want to thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I hope that someday we get to meet in person. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.